everyone. Welcome to the Crime Library. This is another true crime podcast, in case you didn't have enough of those out there. So we are just two best friends who love reading and love true crime, and we figured why not roll it into one podcast and fill your lives with our beautiful voices. So welcome. I hope you enjoy this. I'm Sarah. And I'm Jesse. And we are ready to go. Let's just start by giving a little bit of information about our Perfect. We've been best friends for 12 years and we've known each it's other. It's not 12. It's 12 years. It's 11. No, Nick and I have been together for 11. And we knew uh, yeah. But we've known each other for 16 years. Oh my fucking lord. Let that sink into your brain. Soak it up. I was thinking about it the other day. We've known each other for 16 years. We went and saw Hello Dolly together. That's one more than 15 <laughs> That's literally half of our lives. We've known yeah. each other. Technically so, over half of our lives. So we're super old and we're going <laughs> to die friends together. That's the moral of that story. Or else. <laughs> or else. <laughs> we're not cool anymore. We just we're legit, Jesse. We're legit. <laughs> anyway, so we've been friends for a long time, if you can't tell by this banter we're having. This is literally <laughs> our friendship. <laughs> All right. I think that was. No. Okay. So how did you get into true crime, Sarah? Well, even though my mom refuses to listen to this podcast, it's actually because of my mom. She has been obsessed with it for as long as I can remember. Um, Just always watching those unsolved mystery type shows. And she always knew things about serial killers. And we always talked about it for as long as I can remember. Even my dad was into it while he was alive and just into like horror movies and thrillers and just scary things like that. So it was just been ingrained in my mind. And as I got older and was able to research these things myself, I was just drawn to it. I think you understand it more when you get older, like as a kid, because my mom too would just watch it all the time. But as a kid, you kind of watch it because your mom's watching it. And then as you get older, you get why it's so scary. And you're like, oh, I have to, I have to look into that more. I have to scare myself (laughs) more. Yeah. And there's so much of it that's so interesting, even as frightening or sickening as it might be there's just there's why like why do people do the things like that's the i think the very basic point on why completely watch true crime or obsessed with true crime is because you want to know what the fuck is going on in other people's heads that make them act so horribly yeah i think uh we i've always been a reader i've been a reader since i was little i mostly read romance books which Sarah and my husband say are not real books but they are <laughs> but i read all of like different kinds of books, the classic books and yeah. a good mystery book, but I've never read like a true crime book because there's something super scary about it. So I'm glad we decided yeah. to <laughs> read true crime together because I don't yes. know if I would have done it by myself. There's something. Oh, I don't think I ever actually would have delved into it as much as I said, I love true crime. I felt the same way. I just didn't know if I could take that leap into the true crime books. Yeah, because like with with the TV or like even podcasts, you can put them on, you can kind of put them in the back of your mind while you're doing stuff. When you're reading, I don't know how you do it, but I imagine everything that I'm reading. So then with true crime, you are now imagining this crime scene or this dude is with this book, this dude sneaking outside of your house. So it puts you in a very 
very scary place. Yeah. Cause it's like, you're right in the middle of it almost. So it yeah. just makes it, they are real. Like these books that we're going to be reading are real yeah. facts, but it makes it feel even more real. Yeah. This stuff happened to people and now you're imagining it, living it with them. Like it's scary. So thanks for very scary. <laughs> thanks for reading it. with Yeah, me. <laughs> of course. All right. So uh, just a quick caution that we're going to be talking about graphic material and listener discretion, maybe of us. Yes. All right. So the first book that we read together was the probably well-known by now, if you're into true crime, yeah. is I'll Be Gone in the Dark. Yes. Thank you. Because I can <laughs> never get the subtitle right. <laughs> One Woman's Obsessive Search for the Golden State Killer by Michelle McNamara. And I think it's important to say that if you go into the book wanting to know about Michelle specifically and her quest with the Golden State Killer, then you're going to really enjoy it. But if you're going into it trying to find like a certain timeline for the Golden State Killer, like knowing details about his crime chronologically or however you yes. say that word, you might not enjoy it because it's not it's all over the place. It's put together from her notes on her computer and an article she did. Yeah, but so just mostly, honestly, it's just really through her mind. And that's why like that subtitle is it's, that's exactly what this book is. It's her obsession with the golden state killer. Right. And you, you do get a lot of information, but it is very much Michelle's story as much as it is. I think about you get what a lot was of happening. Victim information too. Completely. Yes. Because she was when very, she very the book, she didn't know who he was. He was caught while yeah. they were doing the tour for the book. So she focused on her experience with trying to catch him and the victim's experience. She wanted to tell more about what happened to these women and these men that were there too. Let's start with the introduction, which was written by what's her name? Jillian. Yes, Jillian Flynn. Jillian Flynn, who writes she writes like thriller movies of movies (laughs) she writes thriller books um her most well-known is probably gone girl gone girl that's right and then she's written dark dark places sharp objects right Um, so she writes the introduction basically to introduce you to michelle yes if you don't know much about michelle it's a it's pretty it's a good lovely piece of writing but if you do know about michelle then it's kind of not needed Okay, so in the introduction, she she writes something that I think is really interesting. She writes, I love reading true crime, but I've always been aware of the fact that as a reader, I'm actively choosing to be a consumer of someone else's tragedy. It puts you just like right in the feels because that's literally exactly what we're doing. We are choosing to read these books. Right, but in and- a sense, I feel like we have a responsibility. Like you remember uh, that case of the little boy on Netflix? I didn't want to yes. watch it. But then I kept thinking, like, if I don't watch it and I don't know his story and they don't spread that awareness and we're not, like, actively choosing to participate in it, then am I letting that person down by not knowing their story? Yeah. That's a weird sense of guilt. (laughs) Right, because you want to remember these people. Right. I don't want them to have to have gone through these horrible things and like no one and everyone just forgets about it which is something that we've already mentioned that is so great about the way michelle wrote this book is because she does give us so much information on these women and men who fell victim to the golden state killer right and it is very honorable to keep their memories and to know their names like you just said because you don't you don't want to forget them no 
And it's easy to focus on a killer, the Golden State Killer, and like sensationalize him, but forget about their victims. Yeah. So, yeah, I just think it's our job to know the story, know what happened to these people because they lived it. Yes. Okay, so the introduction is supposed to be introducing uh, Michelle, but the prologue is supposed to be introducing, from Michelle's point of view, her hunt, her chase for this killer. And it kind of, it brings back the cufflinks, which is brought up quite a few times. Yes. Um, And her thinking that she had found these cufflinks that the Golden State Killer had taken from someone, um, from one of the crime scenes. And she gets so excited about it. So excited. Which is a, it's got to be a moment that, even though it ends up being nothing, it's got to be a moment that kind of justifies her obsessiveness over this. Yeah. Maybe right. she can help solve it in some way. By- exactly. Now there's this, in her mind, tangible thing, thing that there's never really been. Right. And then she tells Patton that she thinks she may have found him. And I just thought it was funny because she didn't mean to say, I think I might have found the killer or the murderer. She wakes up. Yeah. Out of his sleep and was like, I think I may have found him. And she's so obsessed by it that she that he knows automatically. Exactly, her husband knew exactly who she was talking about. She didn't have to give any explanations, and that also just shows how how involved she was. Oh. It was her world at this point. Yeah. It talks about how she it took over her whole house, like even her daughter's playroom. She brought it that far into her life that her family was now in this too so that was interesting yeah so we're just doing the first part of the book and the first part of the book really focuses on the women cases um the harrington case and the cruise case and how they came to be kind of connected and the detectives around them and the dna and it spans over what 20 what's the first one they did yeah like 21 years yeah as she goes into the book michelle doesn't do it chronologically so when she like jumps in and starts writing. This is already in 1981 where unbeknownst to many people, he's already been doing his thing in other parts of California. Yeah, because Sacramento was, Visalia was even before. Yeah, Visalia was in the early 70s. And then he, you know, goes to Sacramento Sacramento, and he kind of stays up in Northern Cali for a while. And then these cases, and this is how she starts. It's just kind of these random cases and, like the Irvine area, which is in Southern California. And this is in the very early 80s. Manuela, because she's German with an, and she was a woman at home by herself. Her husband was in the hospital and she was murdered. And her brother-in-law actually came to clean up the crime scene. And that Michelle gets so into, she interviewed him. She gets so into his experience with cleaning up the crime scene. Right putting it to the back of his mind and then he detaches when he gets in the car. I related to that so much because you kind of you do what you have to do and then you stop and you let yourself cry. But he actually yeah. found a piece of her skull while he was cleaning up cleaning out this crime scene. Oh. And that while reading it was something I had to take a step back from because when you watch these crime shows, you listen to these podcasts and people are being murdered in their homes and, you know, their homes become a crime scene and you don't think about the after. No. And, and that people have have that. Yes, exactly. Like back then they didn't have people come and clean your house for you after forensic testing was done. That was up to you mm-hmm. to do. And so many people had to go back to these homes where these heinous crimes so took you can't place. Just- 
pick up your not everyone can just exactly yeah. like all right let me even just if go. you say you don't stay there you still have to do something with that you still have to exactly you still have to go inside of it yeah exactly and in this case, like you said, it was like the brother-in-law of Manuela. And he said, you know, he wasn't really much of a crier, like he was kind of, and he had off. already experienced he, exactly. He already had kind of this disconnect because yes, he was going, he knew he was going to have to go do this in his everyday life, um, see things like this. And he went and he cleaned it. And like you said, he found the piece of the skull under the bed and it's just, then he goes and he gets in his car and he just starts breaking down and sobbing. When wow. I was reading it, there's so much, you know, that stu- that metaphor, like you throw a, a pebble into a pond and then it ripples and it just keeps going. I kept thinking about yeah. that. Like his, the Golden State Killer, what he did, he didn't just affect the people he was raping and then eventually murdering. It affected their families. And then even like with, uh, the Whitlin case, it affected her husband for years because people thought until 2001, this happened in 1980, that, that he killed her. Yeah. So it... Exactly. And I think he really loved that, the chaos and the commotion that he brought to people's lives. He just disturbed them in so many ways, yeah. not just the one awful act, but everyone exactly around he was truly disturbing not just and even in a i mean he's still figurative Have you seen way like completely it, in both of ways is what yeah. i'm trying to say like he's figuratively disturbing and physically disturbing yeah what he does to these people but like you said that for so long people thought that the husband david did this to his wife even though he was in the hospital and he was sick yeah. and they were like hey still maybe it was him and one night when Drew is with David, Drew comes straight out and asks his brother, did, did you, because no, no. they were like, you know, he, David says, you know, David the says, cops yeah. think that I did this. And then Drew's like, well, did you, yeah. did you kill your wife? Really to say, but like the weight of that coming from a family member, well, did you kill your wife had to be even more like, yeah. but I, I don't think there's a script in that kind of situation. This is what you're supposed to do. And this is what you're supposed to say, but to live no. 20 years under the suspicion that, you know, you killed your wife, even though you know you yes, didn't, that this, must make you feel crazy. Yeah, and knowing that people think that about you, if yeah. you're still, in, if he's still in that area, they know what happened and everyone is probably whispering about it. Yeah. And something that comes up is that he uses things from their home. Which is terrifying. It's yes. another way to them like i've been in your home and i've seen your things and i've moved stuff exactly that's horrifying where you're supposed he to be the safest out. yeah where you're supposed to be the safest yeah. when someone has been inside your house that's horrifying right david mentioned the missing bedside lamp lamp yeah he takes the things and yeah yeah and he's like, well where's the lamp and they assume that that that's what it was. that he, was the murder weapon he would also um when i was reading the visalia part he would take stuff from one house and leave it in another one to kind of like another one yeah yeah so he was all Just, it was like game to him and that's insane you are ruining so exactly. many people's lives and you so many people's this lives is, this is a game it's disgusting he was crazy which you know we know <laughs> now especially but yeah Something they learned as the all these puzzle pieces fell into place. And it's a weird thing because a, a big theme throughout the book is her trying to 
I guess, get into his mindset or what type of person he is. And she has people telling her that um, he's just doing these simple crimes, so he's a simple person. But then she has psychiatrists telling her that that's how people think they can relate something like armed robbery to intelligence, but the basic murdering and killing, they think that's a very simple-minded person. Right. She tries really hard to find a psychological profile, I guess, but there's so many, there's so many cases, so many (laughs) factors, so many, even with the composite sketch, there's no correlation between all there's no telltale like this is the guy yeah so it's and i there's just so only that exact we know dna wasn't as advanced back then but right not only that it's just the fact that this guy you know there were reports where they were like okay he kind of he maybe he lost weight if i tell you they think he's like skinny and baby-faced and and very pale and then six months later he is in a different he's scaling place. walls yeah, and doing these crazy things and they're talking about his thighs she once tracked down people in yearbooks based on just their thighs that's how much it got into her brain yeah but and there that's was just, no like, he, one thing to like there give was, him away. Exactly. There was not just a big neon sign saying, I'm your guy. I mean, but there was Bonnie. No one ever looked into Bonnie when he would cry after he would rape these women. And yeah. But some of the things that, that maybe he was saying mommy, maybe he was saying Bonnie, maybe this, maybe that. But still, it was the 70s and the 80s. You know how many people were named Bonnie? Yeah, but at least that's, that's something. That's like one thing he gave up identifiable. Yeah. And it's okay, like it that's was, one, but that's I know not an I know, like, but it's just you would think that he has this, he has 50 rapes, 10 murders, right? You would think that he's doing this over and over again. And in some way, he was gonna leave more information. That's kind of like the general consensus the more they do it, the more they slip up, right? But there's so many detectives, so much space, so many crime scenes that everything just kind of starts to wash together in not a good way. The composite sketches, you have such a very sketch of them based on different places, but I don't think you can go off of that because I think your mind sees what it wants to see. Like sometimes even rape victims will pick out the wrong people, even though they're face-to-face with the person who raped them. Their mind protects them. They make them more scary. They're teeth are more sharp and their eyes are more beady they make them into this monster in their head so it's not exactly accurate yeah it's not cut and dry yeah i guess the only thing you can actually count on is dna and this is the 70s so it took them (laughs) a long time (laughs) a very long time in his lab just trying to make connections and And that's exactly what i was about to get at like even just making these connections as we go out throughout this book like she starts the story almost at the end of his span Mm -hmm. his spree whatever you want to call it you know, his last known victim was 1986. She starts right. the book in 1981 and just kind of goes back from there. But it's to make that point that these connections weren't being made just yet. No. And she was really, really a pusher of the DNA, the technology, internet, all of it is going to make this guy come. Yes. Something is going to happen. There's with Larry Poole, the detective who comes in in the 2000s, so he's already been uh, dormant for a long time. Everyone keeps telling him, this guy's dead. This guy's in prison. They don't just go dormant for no reason. For whatever reason, he did. But by this time, even in the 2000s, DNA is catching up. 
we have so many things today and she pushed so hard and it's sad that she didn't get to the one thing she knew was gonna get him his dna did get him and she didn't get to Yeah, yeah it's very sad but it's something she does make known and even Patton makes known that, you know, she, most important to her was getting this man caught. Right. But as much as we all wish that she would have got to see this man that for so long was faceless in her yeah. mind, um, I think, you know, she would at least be at peace knowing that he was caught, whether it was after her time or. And her death so. really did, as awful as it is, her death really did push all of this further and push the detective, I think, to like make an even bigger rush and i think he even gave paul holes he says in the um docuseries on hbo he says when she died i lost my investigation buddy like she was kind of there pushing him to like hey what about this yeah. guy what you know and he wanted to do justice by her so i think yeah and it's tragic and sad and everything was lost when she died i think it really pushed things forward too. yeah Exactly. No one they wanted, wanted to finish this book. They want, like, yeah, no one wanted so much. her work to be in vain. Completely. So, one part of the book that she goes back on, uh, there's a there's a section called Oak Park, which I think brings two things in the book to life. One, her obsession with true crime started with Kathleen Lombardo. Yeah. And that case. And then her dynamic with her mom, which also bleeds into, I think, her writing of Debbie Domingo and Sherry Domingo. Let's do very um, true. Kathleen Lombardo first. So that was when she was a teenager. She's 14, right? Yeah. In Chicago, she was just this, they just lived in this like Irish Catholic neighborhood. This young woman, Kathleen, in her, what, she was in her early 20s, right? 20s, yeah. Um, she was just jogging down a few, a few hundred yards away from Michelle's house. An alley close yeah. to where she lived. And got, yes, got attacked in an alley and was murdered. And, and it's Michelle, such a small uh, community that yeah. Michelle knew right, one right away when it happened. Yes. It kind of this weird, I know her vaguely, but now she's gone type thing. But she also ends up finding out years later that she crushed on the one of the boys and his cousin and a small group of boys who found the body of Kathy. Yes, exactly. It was, I don't know. in a weird. Yeah, it was, I'm trying to think of that. There, what's it, like the degrees, 10 degrees? Yeah. Six degrees of separation. Yeah. So yeah. It was such a small place that she was connected to her, but she didn't really know her, but there was still this feeling of loss. Yeah. And yeah, like you said, she like throughout her whole school, her time in school, she had this crush on this boy. And she does it such a good, even as a grown woman, she does such a good job of writing like that first it's like crush, your crush feeling of being yes. like invisible. And then, and do you remember oh my who God, your yes. first crush was? Because I can remember. Yeah. Who, I can't remember his name for some reason, but I remember like him. I remember my name. It was, do I say it on a podcast? Say it was it. my. It was Michael Kerr. You know what? I think mine was a Michael too. I don't remember <laughs> what his last name was, but he had the only thing I remember. The reason I liked him was because he had blue eyes, and blue was my favorite color. But this was kindergarten. Nice. So like, yeah, mine was in like kindergarten too. I don't even remember why I liked Michael Kerr, but I did. But then I remember <laughs> I was actually just thinking about this. 
years later when I was probably in like fifth or sixth grade and I was in the band, I played the clarinet Mm -hmm. and it was probably fifth grade because I think sixth grade I was not first chair, but I was closer to the first chair. And like in fifth grade, I wasn't as good. So I was, you know, more towards the back and he played in the percussion. I was, I guess I was picking my nose. I don't even really remember, but he yelled at me to stop picking my nose. How and he was like, how dare you, Michael? Exactly. Like Shame I'm 10 you. years old. Let me pick my nose in peace. And he's like, no. stop you picking really, your nose. You really and I was like, oh, no, I really should not have been, but come on <laughs> to call me out That's like okay. that. And there was this know. other, no, listen, cause then there was, I don't even know his name. All I could think about was the bully that I had a crush on in, when I was five then there was this guy standing next to him who was also in the percussion. He's like, hey, leave her alone. And he like stood up for me. And I was like, oh, but I have no idea who that guy is. So, no, but of course you know. became your like Toxic. <laughs> <laughs> Listen though, as your best fucking friend, I will find this Michael dude and punch him in the face for calling you out for picking your boogers as a 10 year old. And Yeah, great. exactly. Let me pick my nose. Like, Just come let, on. Let a girl pick her nose and pee. But anyway, yes, I remember. Remember my first crush? I used to also paint pictures of him, just so you know. (laughs) Michael Kerr, if you're listening to this, I'm happily married and I still pick my nose sometimes. So, (laughs) (laughs) anyways, okay. Anyway, okay. Back to Michelle. If we don't talk about the funny things, then talking about the horrible things just is not going to work. So just to have very true, very true to be rude or disrespectful. We're just distracting ourselves from how shitty the world (laughs) truly is. Because sometimes you just have to find the joy in life. Sometimes you just have to pick those joy. Sometimes you gotta pick those buggers. (laughs) It's okay. Maybe don't do it at band practice. Maybe wait till you're home. And then pick your boogers. Oh, my God. Okay. So, like you, Michelle was also ignored by Danny Olas until she was older. And he emails her to tell her, hey, you know, me and my cousin were there when the body was found. So, there's this group of boys. They're just hanging out like, you know, kids do. So, they come upon the body of Kathleen in this alleyway. But it's, like, right after she was killed. Right after she was killed. It was, like... Minutes. What happened, Sarah? There is a guy. A guy. Who comes out. Of the alley. He's just like, what's going on here? And he's not looking at the body. Like, can't can't right, even. There's a but yet there's this there, group of 14-year-olds. Yeah. And he's yeah. relying on them to tell, you're the adult in this situation. Maybe you'd be helping these children. Eventually, he dipsets away from the scene where there's this dead body and these children these children exactly he just goes off somewhere we don't yeah he's gone yeah he's just gone the The cops come and they're like trying to figure out what's happening so they're going to the houses in the alley or whatever and then we find out a little while later through danny's yeah through danny's cousin terry terry they were riding to this concert together not danny and terry terry and this other kid from the neighborhood. I don't yeah. remember his name. Some other guy. She, he's in the car with him, and he's and this kid says, "You know, I always thought someone, my neighbor, um, yeah, had done it." And Terry's like, "Well, what did he look like?" And he describes the guy that they saw, yes. coming out of the alley. 
Yes. And when he comes out onto his porch, what does he say, Sarah? Yeah. So, like, the cops are coming because this guy that Terry's riding to the concert with, yes, is lives right where the accident, the murder took place. And... The, like you said, the police are coming in there canvassing and they're like, hey, did you, did you notice anything? Did you see anything? The neighbor and Terry's friend are outside and the neighbor's like, oh, what's going on here? And he says the same thing he says to that group of children. Why has no one looked up this dude and fucking questioned him? I need to know, like, what is this man doing? Yeah. What, have we just solved another case? Like, yeah, Michelle just saw right. Uh, yeah, exactly. When the kids are like, hey, when this guy comes out and he's like, what's going on? And the kids are like, yo, call the police. He's like, I don't have a phone. <laughs> like, so I'm just going to leave you. I'm just going to leave you 14. No year one to has it. a phone back then. What are and you then, talking about? Go someplace and get some help. There's probably a freaking bodega. I don't know if that's the term in Chicago, but there's probably oh, no. something there. I don't even know what type of neighborhood they live a in Chicago. There might store. not have been. Talking, there might not have been a corner store, but no, there, might there have is been. because they're, that's where they're going. That's where the oh, that's right. They're going, going to the corner store. You're so absolutely right. Definitely a corner store. This guy like go get some help. Into. Yeah, so go get some help and help these freaking children. Instead, you go take a shower and then you still don't know what's going on because he was yeah, fully showered, showered when he came out. Meanwhile, you know that even if you had nothing to do with it, you still know something's going on. I'm sure there were police sirens, police lights, and you're just going to be like, let me go take a shower. No, if that was me, I'd be like peeking out the curtains. Right, what the no heck's happening? In a small Irish neighborhood is minding their damn business. You know, Not at all. You know these people would... Six to nine kids. No one is minding their business. They're trying to see what's happening so they can talk to their friend. Like, did you see what happened? Yeah. Do you know what happened? Yep. No I'd be way. there with my binoculars like, hey. But yeah, so that was her introduction to this world. She figured out that information later, which made her, like we said, even more connected to it. Right. She went back to uh, revisit the crime Harry. scene. Yeah. yeah. Go around her old neighborhood. Which had to be weird for her anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a part where she's talking about how this really uh, made her interested in true crime. And later she starts a, the true crime blog, True Crime Diary. Diary. Yeah. And she says that even when she is um, chasing this Golden State killer, she's brought back to that alley because she went to visit the crime scene the next day. Right. Yeah. And found a little piece of her Walkman, Kathleen's Walkman. And yes. And kind of held it in her hand. And yeah. Yes. And it, it was always good writing. That was that 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 took me to the scene. Right. You can picture like, yourself being that girl who wants to yes. know what happened, wants to like solve this case. Yes. And just having this piece of something off. Right. And it's just kind of crazy that she has this unsolved case that she has this connection and obsession with. And then later on in her life, she finds another one that she just delves her whole life into. And I think it's great how 
supported she is by Patton and yes. all this. Their marriage is when she's at the funny people yeah. premiere and she just wants to go home because something exciting happened in a case that in the case into. Uh-huh. and he's just like all right i got you like she didn't even yeah. say anything and i just want my husband my yeah. beautiful, lovely husband to let me listen to my true crime podcast in peace without making fun of me and here's Patton literally walking away from famous people to let her go home yeah and sit in yep. her bed on her laptop and, and I he just, just knew didn't even have to ask. He could Which just tell. A, a blessing and a curse, I think, because when you watch the, you have to watch it after we're done with this. When you watch the I'll Be Gone in the Dark um, docuseries, there is so much love and support from him, but there's also like a too much faith in her when it comes to her drug use and her. Yeah. He thinks that she's got it under control and she's so confident about it. Like, I'm just taking this in the morning and then this in the night to like go to sleep and wake up. And there's, there's loving someone so much that you're blind, I think. And they definitely yeah. have a very beautiful relationship, but very. He just loved her so yeah. much. Yeah. And you can tell it. Even in her writing, you can tell it. I don't want to cry. I have like tears. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody else that loved her so much that she had a kind of, that was more of a rocky relationship yeah. than her and Patton are, but was her mother. Yeah. And that's the second part of Oak Park is really her focus on her mom and her relationship and how up and down it was. Yeah. They've just, she was the youngest by many, many years. So she never really had a connection with her siblings. Um, The connection she had. She did. She had like a baby doll connection. Exactly. That's what I was getting at. It wasn't like they were playing together. It was no. kind of like her older sisters, like, oh, yeah, let me take you with me because, yeah, like, you're like my little baby doll. And yeah. as they got older, they lost interest in that, for lack of better term. And so she never really had people to play with. And in her neighborhood, all the other kids were older than her. And she eventually made some friends that moved in. But a lot of her life, I feel like her childhood anyway, not her life, I shouldn't say, like a lot of her childhood, she kind of felt alone. Yeah, and I get that because, like, my sister is eight eight years something. My brother's seven years. Like, my siblings are older, and you have, like, this kind of only child complex, but then mixed with, like, youngest child complex. Yeah, yeah. It's like, where do I fit into things? And I think her mom was tired when she came along, honestly. Yeah. She raised five other kids, and she was exhausted, and she had lost an infant son, I think it says in there. So she had already gone through all this stuff in life and she just didn't know what she was tired, I think. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying everything she did was right. Like, right. She said that uh, her mom used to write things and slip it under her door because they couldn't right. fight to face. They couldn't. Face. Mm-hmm. And she would say, like, you're vain and vindictive or like things like that. And that's got it. That 100% stuck with Michelle throughout her whole oh, life. Completely. But I think her mom loved her. She just didn't know how to love her in the way that Michelle needed. Yeah. She wanted everything for her. She wanted her to be a good writer. But then at her wedding, she was like, she made a comment to her friend, like, don't you think it's too late for her to be a writer? Oh, right. And fuck that friend, man, for telling Michelle on her wedding day and then starting this huge fight between her and her mom. No. Yeah. I hope you feel bad about that now. Yeah. I know. What does she say? She says, what was that line that you Which part? Oh, that quote? Yeah. Um, This one. 
it's my mother was and will always be the most complicated relationship of my life. Which I think is so relatable. We love our moms. We would live and die for our moms. But I feel like, and in any ways, you can love your mom every day, all day long. But there's still this complicated yeah, Bitches. I feel like I'm almost like a patent in that situation where I love my so mo- my mom so much. I sometimes ignore the things that aren't necessarily healthy, and just because of the amount of love I have for her. Um, and as I, you know, grow up and try to learn and educate myself, I, I'm starting to see that if my mom doesn't have to be this perfect person, and it's okay. Yeah, but, but I think too, like as you get older. She, her mom died before she had Alice, so she didn't get yeah. the other side of it. But she was yes. starting to, like, rebuild right before her mom passed away. Right. And talk about more of the things that, you know, were bothering them. And I I wish I had gotten a chance to do that because I think as you grow older, your relationship shifts to where the mom stops being I know everything and more starts to listen. Right. And she got that a little bit. They started to, like, talk and rebuild their relationship. But she did pass away before really she could see yeah you know and then having alice made michelle understand her mom more because yeah that was like literally the part i cried i cried a bunch during this but (laughs) the first time i cried was when so michelle says about having alice she had Patton tells people that she had postpartum depression but she didn't have postpartum she she writes but it wasn't new mommy blues it was old mommy blues which i understood yeah so much she had alice she understood she says the world focuses on this tiny human being and she gets the the weight the responsibility of that but i also understand going through it when i had bailey i was so depressed that my mom was never gonna meet my daughter and i i at least had the memories of my mom with my son so i think that's why i didn't fully like dip into it but it's even now I think about the relationship that I know my mom would have had with my kids and I just can't, it's so hard to deal with. And when you're a new mom, you have so much responsibility and weight and grief and like everything hits you all at once about every relationship, but especially your mom. Your mom. Now you know. Now you are one. Yeah. Yeah. So, and she never had a chance to say those things to her mom. No. And I know when I have children, I want to be near my mom. I yeah. can't imagine doing it without her. It's a completely different. I don't even know it's, how to describe it. Yeah, you do, I, and I not that boys don't need their moms too, but I feel like most girls I talk to have a different relationship with their moms than yeah. sons do with their moms. I, they're just like a bond that whether it's always good or not, it's just unbreakable. Yeah, and she even says she was like, I was stuck. With, I was struck with these two truths. My mom would take such joy from this book more than anyone would, but I wouldn't have been able to do it if she hadn't right. passed away. I think there was her mom was always to, kind of like a block. Yeah, there was I, freedom for her to do what she wanted to do now yeah. without her mom's opinion weighing on it, good, bad, or indifferent. But still, it would have been something nice she could have shared with her mom. Yeah, like. so it's just... Yeah, I can see through her writing how complicated the feelings are, and it's very relatable. Yeah, I think everyone can in some way. I was listening to other podcasts about um, the docuseries, and they really just didn't understand, I think, her mom's side of it. They just understood what happened with Michelle and Michelle's. 
feelings about it, but I don't right. think they got her mom's side of it. And it's something even through her writing, I could tell that Michelle did understand her mom's. Right. Maybe later she just yes. didn't get to it when there was a chance to fix it, I guess. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think that too is a case in a lot of people's lives. Yeah. Which I think in this sense makes it even that much more relatable because yeah. unfortunately we don't really know what we have till it's gone. Yeah. And it's why easy but true. Why Pete yeah, exactly. That's why people are always like, you know, love the people you love. <laughs> Show them you love them. But it's true. As cheesy as it is, it's true. Tell the people you love that you love them. <laughs> yeah. At the end of Oak Park, <laughs> I wrote something down that just reminded me of you because she's talking about how she gets to Rancho Cordova and she's talking yep. about it like only Californians can do. And only I've only heard you do since you moved there. She talks about like the street she takes that turns into this yeah. and goes <laughs> to that. Yeah. So she's going to Sacramento, but yeah. I just thought it was hilarious how extremely yeah. Californian. It is extremely Californian, but it's like, I don't know. I don't know that much about Northern Cali, but I know she, you know, lives in Southern California where I also live. And it's such a, like a Southern California thing to do. Um, I feel like it isn't all over California thing, but I really can only speak for what I know about, which is also what she knows about. Um, yeah, and that is totally you name the freeway that you're taking. <laughs> so, yeah, you know that, and no it's not like it's not necessarily like the exit about. number where it's like, no. oh, I'm gonna take exit four. It's like, no, I'm gonna get off at Sepulveda Boulevard. I'm gonna exactly. get off here. Like yeah. you, you name the street. You name that's the exit you're taking. It's like, oh yeah, like I'm gonna go here. You're not. Gonna, oh yeah, get off at exit seven. Like no, I mean maybe yeah. people do, but the people I know like. They know the road. They know when there's gonna be traffic. It's <laughs> such a it just super Cali super California. I wonder like what the maybe that's what you have to do to pass the test to become a California citizen. Because she was from Chicago and she moved there. You mean a California resident? Oh, <laughs> California is so big, motherfucker. It could be another. <laughs> Might as well be our own country. You cannot drive in one day and have peace from top to bottom of California, okay? I know those so red states day. wish we were our own country. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that leads into Sacramento. 1970 through 1977, which is just a dump of information. Oh my gosh, yes. The what he does just throughout this year that First this year, yeah. And there's many rapes in this one year, and it's just one right after the other. And there's even a quote where a detective, after so much time, says, when asked about a certain rape, he's they're just exactly like the other ones. There's so much stuff he did in Sacramento. Yeah. And this is kind of where Michelle says where it, like, this is where it all started. Right. Um, the first, first victim. Um, and because at this point, yet that exactly. At this point, there's no connection between him the and the Visalia ransacker. So this, but this is where the, the rapes start. Um, mm -hmm. So in a sense, it is kind of where it all started. In that sense. Well, um, it, when they eventually, when you go through the Visalia chapter that's in there, you can see in the Sacramento chapter, 
the building of MO starts, even in Vice City. Right. He knows where the lotion is in the house, which is yes. just so fucking creepy. His ski mask, his, um, what did she say? He brings binds to it. Like, he doesn't bring yes. a whole lot. He does have guns sometimes and knives sometimes, but mostly, like you said, he likes to murder the people with the stuff at the house. So yeah. he yeah. does bring, he brings very few things with him. So I guess to not be right. protected. Like, yeah. If he's- For the most part, I think it's that the people say like he had like a backpack with him and right. like something it was nothing he- crazy. It was something he could take and run, take and escape. And but the- there were all these little pieces and that's why so many detectives that are all these detectives in these different, different counties and districts were, you know, working on different cases and all these little pieces were kind of fitting together. Yeah, but I think it's a, a depending on who's looking at it, it's fitting together. Yes. So we have a lot of Santa Barbara for some reason just refused to connect him yeah. with other cases. And it took, yeah. like when Paul Holes was looking into it or Larry Crompton, was it Larry Crompton? Yeah, it is Larry. Larry Crompton. Yeah. So we have Larry Poole, Larry Crompton. That's why I was getting confused because we also have Larry Poole. So yeah, yes. Larry okay. Poole is like the 2000 detective. Larry Crompton yes. was on it before it, but he retired yes. and eventually Paul Holes. Um, gets up with him and he's like, hey, what are these cases? And he's like, you have to go, you know, to Irvine and you have to go to Santa Barbara. Or no, he says you have to go to Santa, Santa Barbara. Barbara. Mm-hmm. Santa Barbara directs him to Irvine. To Irvine. Telling him, no, there's nothing like that here. Yes, exactly. Is. So it's a weird mix of some people see it, like Jim White, the criminalist. Yeah. He sees it. Mary Hong sees it. I think there's a section in here where she talks about the difference between the detectives and how they work at it and go towards it and the criminalists who really just focus on the DNA. And the criminalists, they have the ability to look at only the facts. They are not jaded like the detectives are on people's behavior or things that they said. And she says a really interesting thing that I thought was just such a great piece of writing. She says about the detectives, the job inflicts lacerations. In turn, the cops become lacerating. And I thought that just sums up a detective who has seen too much shit. He's seen the same things over and over again. Domestic violences, maybe some murders, whatever. And he's jaded by what he thinks is like a people pattern. So he's just focusing on that. He knows he has a guy that he has in mind and he thinks that he knows that there he's the one who's doing all this yeah he gets that tunnel vision where the criminalists are only looking at the dna only coming from what they can find that was actually there at the scene connecting him to his semen and dna to all these other crimes you know for a fact it's connecting because his dna is there yeah you don't have a pattern to go on where you can just be like that mo looks like this mo no there's actual dna evidence connecting it so i get what she's trying to say their jobs are very different but i think the criminalists have a better view on it because they're not jaded they're not lacerated by so many years yeah i thought that was a good a good comparison orange county was kind of a lot about the dna and right because that's when it's all kind of taking form even though you still for many years it's still like not that advanced, but that's kind of where it's all, where that part is really all starting. Um, yeah, you get the Orange County right before you get 
um, Janelle Cruz's. So yeah. we're at Orange County. We're learning that um, Wyvern, Harrington, and Cruz are all connected. Yes. And only because Jim White, the criminalist, saw a pattern and then mentioned it to Mary Hong. Yeah. Mary Hong was looking at spreadsheets and connected Cruz to it. So Yeah. Yeah, because the Harrington case happened one year prior to the Wyvern case and then cruises and then cruise happened what? in 86 so it was 1980 1981 and then janelle cruise was 1986 and she was his last yes that's For the last reason he had deviated from he went from raving women who are or girls some of them were teenage girls home mm-hmm. alone knowing their patterns routines and when their family is going to be there yeah he then evolved to attacking couples couples where the male, he would tie the male up, put a teacup on them, and yeah. say, if this rattles, I'll kill your yeah. wife. And yeah. then for some reason, his last kill is another teenage girl by herself. Yeah. And he had the opportunity. Her friend was there. He had the opportunity to kill. Oh, that's right. Earlier in the night, she was Yeah, with and they heard him moving around, but they kept saying, oh, it's the washing oh, machine. Just, yeah, that's yeah. very, that's right. So I wonder why. He goes back to just killing her. But his last his last crime, Janelle Cruz, is more DNA evidence because that's where they find that his blood type is even more rare than they thought. That's before. right. When he's like the non-secretor. Yeah, his combination of non-secretor and whatever PGM stands for. Yeah, and they found out in Rancho Cordova in Sacramento when that this he was all happening that he uh, that uh, that he the, his blood type that he was um a he was oh. type B blood so they knew his blood type now they're like now they're finding out all these other pieces about his years blood. later yeah um okay. and again this still isn't even connected but it's stuff that's going to help them later on in the case right and Paul Hole says at one point like you can't even trust uh the DNA typing because the technology is just so different. And then when he is looking, Paul Holes is looking into the case, him and Mary Hong, Hong have two different two different typing of the DNA. They don't right. have the same technology to code the DNA. So they have to wait four years, even though they are pretty sure that these cases are connected. Right. They have to wait four more years to have the same technology to compare it. So that's even what it's just yeah. a waiting game. Which is crazy. This whole thing is a waiting game. We finally saw an end to it, but people who were living this, these victims, Michelle, these detectives from the 1970s. I keep going back to the first one that we see is the um, within case in David. Yeah. And he didn't even become excluded until 2001, which is almost 20 years ago, but was 20 was years, 20 years on, after the after it. And murder. He didn't even, no one told him he was, he found out through the news when Larry Poole accidentally coins him the original Night Stalker. Stalker, yeah. He finds out because all of these cases were connected together, that's how he finds out that he's excluded from being her killer through the yeah. news. They don't even call and tell him, which is such like, hey, bullshit. But we got a DNA profile. 20 years later. Also, I just want everyone to stop using the hashtag hot fools. That's my plea oh, to everyone yeah. because I cannot handle. Oh my God, I know that double, poor man. The double meaning of it. 
I mean, I feel like he's for holes. No, I get it. He's a he's a good looking dude. Like, I'm not saying any of that. I, I get it. He's like such a romance type detective, right? Guy who comes in and solves this cold case. Yeah, he's exactly. I get it. You could write a romance novel on him. Yeah, hot for holes implies so many disgusting things. He doesn't have the greatest last name for that hashtag. No, no. Just, just stop saying it. I need it. It could just be like hot for Paul, but then it's like, well, what Paul are you talking about? I mean, I would like to uh, propose Paul holds his daddy because I didn't know what daddy meant for a long time. Oh, that's right. I thought you said daddy at first, and I'm totally against that because Paul holds is not my daddy. But (laughs) daddy. Would that be cool if Paul Holes was my dad? Yeah, like that would be did great. Not no, Paul Holes. I am not, not in the any way related. Father of Sarah Troy. I am not Ellen Brand in any ways related to Paul Holes. At least according to my twenty three and me. I mean, I think <laughs> it would be very creepy for you because I would think your dad is hot. So I think um, that would be a weird experience. That would be weird, but no, yeah. So Paul Holes is zaddy. Um, I'm not hip with the term. I know what it means, but I don't use it. But hey, sure, go for it, Zaddy. <laughs> I just <laughs> did that make me sound old because that was the point. So that's what I'm hoping. No, I just love that we had to with clear. The term. I just love that. We oh, had that to Paul's is, that. Paul is not my dad. dad. Again, <laughs> I hope that also made me sound old. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But I don't know. I kind of just want to go over like quick before we kind of finish out part one, just how like, I think we'll go more into it in part two. um, Cause this book is written in parts and we're gonna, we're going to cover more of it um, in our next episode. So, so what was I talking? I was talking about DNA. Yeah. Okay. And then I was oh, saying, I was talking go. about, okay, I got it. I got it. I knew how we can do it. Okay, go ahead. Okay. So um, we're talking about the DNA and Janelle Cruz and how she's his last victim. But then it jumps from um, Janelle Cruz being his last victim in Irvine into Ventura, which is his first murder of a man and a woman. That's, yes. And she says it a few times. Uh, everyone thinks that. For some Goleta. reason, something pushed him. Yeah, Golita pushed him over the edge for Ventura, and that's where yes, that's right. Lyman and Charlene Smith. Yes, that's right. But of course, they don't know even that it's connected at this point, and they right. quickly, very quickly, settle in on a suspect for the Lyman and Charlene Smith case. In um, Ventura, yeah, yeah. Lyman is a doctor, and Charlene is his second wife. They're killed, but the night before they were killed, his former business partner, Joe Alsip, is there. Mm-hmm. They are convinced that it's this guy. And yeah. Michelle really like wanted suspects. to write so much more on this. Yeah. She actually she had bought, so much. Yes, go ahead. Go ahead, yeah, girl. She actually bought, wait, what, it was $14,000, right? I don't even have the number, but some crazy she amount. She bought all of his court like, records for the yeah. disposition. Mm-hmm. I think she wanted to kind of like go through why it's so easy to get stuck on these guys because in the next section too, um, there's another, I lost it though. There's another guy who they get stuck on. 
but now I can't find it. Oh, well, in Santa Barbara County, yeah. they get they get stuck on that um that like the local quote unquote the local thug. Yeah. Anyway. Um okay. So Michelle wanted to go into much deeper detail, but because she passed away, yeah, she couldn't. Yeah, it never really got finished. But the crazy thing about Joe was that he allegedly confessed to his priest. Minister, yeah. Minister, sorry. Yeah, that's the Catholic in me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I literally have priest written in my notes. Uh, I guess just any man of the church is a priest to me. (laughs) I always say pastor, so I think that's the Southern raising. Yeah, I think that if they had just taken five freaking seconds to look into this guy because it's well documented. Yeah. He puts himself in the middle of investigations. And what do you want? I don't know what he wants. He ends up like calling them to say that Joe's breaking into his house, but he wasn't actually. And they showed up quicker than they thought he was. Than he thought he he was going to. Yeah. That's right. He was like, oh, you were right here. Yeah. So He got away in one second. (laughs) How scary is that, by the way, that you can literally, this this went all the way to pre-trial. Yeah. How scary is it that you can be accused and like almost tried for a crime that you absolutely did not commit all on being at their house which i understand makes you look bad but there's no physical evidence to say if there was a section where it's talking about the detective was so convinced that even when the dna came back that it wasn't him he still thought it was him yeah completely that is horrifying to me. Yeah. I, like one of my biggest fears, I don't know why this is my biggest fear. Hopefully I'll never have to worry about it. Is that someone is going to get murdered around me and I'm going to, and you're going to get falsely yeah. accused. When we were living in upstate New York, we lived uh, behind this Chinese restaurant in an apartment building and the Chinese restaurant got like uh, robbed. And I think someone right. got shot. There was no one who got killed, but for some reason in my head, because my mom lived behind this Chinese restaurant in my you kid thought, head, I thought they were going to think that she did it. And I cried. Oh I like bawled. <laughs> <laughs> but I still, as an adult, like think about that way more than I should. Like, what Oh, no, I, I think get? about it all the time. But I think it is because, you know, I watched Making a Murderer and I watched yeah. those, the confession <laughs> tapes yep. on like Nets, all those things. Make, oh, let's not even but there's part of me. That's like, hmm, maybe if I get falsely accused, then I could have a lawsuit and my millions of dollars. I was like, but then yeah, I'd but have to you go, don't but then I'd have to really go through prison. Money, by the way. Do you not ever get it? Because most of the time the fucking Because most so of the broken. time they um and also then they frame you. Oh, for then murder. they frame your yeah. I mean we don't know. Justice for Stephen Avery. I don't, I, don't ju- I want justice, at least for Brendan Dassey. I want Justice for Brendan Dassey, 150. I'll say that 100 million percent. Stephen Avery, like you said, it is what it is. He'll never get a fair trial now. So we will honestly never know. Brendan Dassey, 100% needs justice. Yes. All right, let's talk about Goleta. Yes, which is in Santa Barbara, which is just north of Ventura. Um, And it happened. California. Yes, but it happened just. (laughs) Before Ventura is when we see the shift. Um, um, so she thought that there was something. That yes. there was something tying him there. And yes. honestly, I think we need to look it up. I think there is something that they eventually find out. 
that he has some kind of connection to Goliana, but for whatever reason, it kept kind of tripping him up. He couldn't finish his sexual assault there. Yeah, it says that he never um, was able to rape any of his female victims because there but was that always is something. Where what happened before Goleta happened right before Ventura, which is where yeah. he killed for the first time. So something set him. Well, off. that's not actually his first. Kill okay. Because yeah. No. Yeah. He has killed before, but, but this was his first kill in that way. Yeah. And I think the first time he killed somebody was he went in and knew that he was going to do it. That's exactly a good way to put it. Killing in the crime, spur of like, the moment. Yeah. Heat of the moment type thing agree that's a good way to put it so we visit Goleta two times though the first like one of the first things they talk about is what happens in 1979 when the um the dog was stabbed right in the woman's backyard yeah and then so yes there's some animal brutality from this man too yeah there's a section where it says that he punched somebody's pet in the face Everything else, I don't know why I'm so <laughs> upset by it because he's done some fucked up shit, but I just can't imagine. It's like a poodle or something. I can't imagine looking a dog in the face and punching them. Like, what is you have to be just, I mean, he's. I already, mean, we know that he is. I know, just. but to <laughs> me, it's even more horrible. <laughs> like, we already know. Connection to humans versus animals, but I just think that that is the line that you cross. Yeah. <laughs> Punch. An animal in the eye. Yeah, so he, like, stabs this dog in this woman's backyard, and then, like, what, not even a week later, he attacks a woman right by where that happened. Yeah, he... And um, her boyfriend is there. Yeah, so he, he stabs the dog in this woman's backyard, and then not even a week after that happens, he attacks a woman and her boyfriend right in that same area. Yeah. And they, thankfully... Somehow she she is able to get up and get away. Yes. And they, in all this like chaos, the neighbor is alerted. And yeah, he's she's like, running well, down the street, like screaming. I guess they didn't know he was an FBI agent. Yeah. And um, uh, yes. And that's, he's an FBI agent, the neighbor, and he chases down the attacker. And he like gets in his car and he's chasing him down. And freaking Golden State Killer hops on this bike. Takes off on this bike. Just takes off on this bike. How is that even? Yeah. He like cops a fence and just gets away. That was in the fall of 79. And then one of the next thing that happens is in December of 1980. This is a little while after that, but still in Goleta, he attacks Dr. Offerman and his girlfriend. And they find twine that he used throughout different areas of Goleta and the cops are trying to like think, Hmm, did he do this on purpose? Was this an accident? And that, um, isn't Goleta where he became known as the, the Creek killer. Yeah. Cause the, so uh, they, nicknames for yeah. It, so many. Cause all the, all the different places. Cause he was using a lot of the, uh, he was using the waterways to escape some of these, which is what these they think areas. they did for a lot. Because I guess out there in the suburbs, there's a lot of waterways that connect to, like, all the houses. And I think he used the waterways to 
get in and out without needing a vehicle because there's not a whole lot about his vehicles. There's it's mentioned a time or two, but he doesn't like drive his car up to these houses or anything. He sneaks up from different places. There's a right. lot of premeditation, and he had to have planned out those routes. Yeah. So, um, but again, in this Offerman case, it's thwarted. Um, he just has to kill them. Not kill them. He just has to escape. Sorry, he doesn't kill them yet. Oh, no, he does kill them. He does kill them. That's why I'm confused. Is that the first time he kills? We're so, this is so, I, I guess that is. Because I have written that he kills them. Yeah, because I have highlighted right at the end of the passage before that, after that, none of his victims ever lived to describe them again. So I guess That's right. Dr. Offerman, Charlene, and Oh, because you Lyman know what? This were not his first. In the, uh scheme of this thing yeah exactly this probably happened before. like right before ventura did oh that's why i think this one's so hard to do sorry sorry guys that's a little bit backwards but he does kill dr offerman and his girlfriend and that's the first time he kills so um, Golita, there's an even bigger connection because that's the first time he kills but he doesn't sexually assault the woman and he does he not kills. after that in 1981 there's this this really to me it's super tragic um because of the daughter yeah you um, can tell that michelle identifies with debbie so yes much in the struggle that she's yes. going through sherry the mother had been divorced and they moved and so uh debbie's away from all her friends and sherry's trying to like, mother her but it's just not kind of working out the boundaries or rules and Debbie ends up running away. Yeah. And the last thing she says to her mother is, why don't you get the hell out of my life? Yes. I've got to stay with her. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. Her. Because literally that night, her mother and her mother's former on boyfriend. Yeah. yeah on, on again, again off again. Um, boyfriend, male friend is at her house and he's actually just there kind of it's kind of the spur of the moment he was in a yeah, relationship to be there he had just come with, from florida he was yes, maybe gonna he, propose to this other girl yes was in a more committed relationship than with sherry um but was like you know what i'm gonna go hang out with my friend tonight went to sherry's house and they are attacked and killed the next day uh debbie's aunt Right? It's Seppi's aunt. Mm-mm. The um, realtor finds her, and then the woman oh, across the street, the street. Debbie's, uh, not Debbie's aunt, Sherry's friend, um, contacts Calls Debbie her. Like, you have to come home. And she's being bratty, and she's like, No, I'm not coming home because she still thinks this woman's trying to make guess. You just want me to talk to my mom. I don't yeah. want to talk to my mom. Which and I she's can like, totally no. get as a teen at one point. Like, you're so bratty. Yeah. So you think you know everything. And oh, exactly. It's like, I'm not going to talk to her. She doesn't know that this tragic thing is happening. Exactly. And, and she said that, happen. she says it again. She's like, no, you need to come home. And Debbie was like, I could tell that something yeah, wasn't right. And she gets to the house and she sees Greg's car in the driveway. She's like, where's Greg? Because they actually had a really good relationship. And police on the scene didn't even know who no, they did. Greg was. Yeah, they did. They knew there was a second body. Yeah, but they didn't, they know, didn't know. Yeah, his name was Greg. Exactly. So like, they were like, "Oh, that's that's this other person involved in this attack." And, and this is where um, they suspect Brett Glassby. Yeah, who's just, just like, like 
Joel Sip. They exactly. Were both but they both had to wait years for DNA evidence yes. to exonerate them. And as we mentioned, Santa Barbara was very against the idea of this being related, even as um, before DNA proved that they were, you know, detectives and people were like, oh no, these, the MOs mm-hmm. are very similar. And Santa Barbara was like, nope, nope, nope. And then Santa Bar, like we said, Santa Barbara connected them to Irvine and that's how it all got started there. And then it wasn't until 2011 when DNA was tested that linked Sherry and Greg's murder to the East Area Rapist and the original Night Stalker. Because at that point, and the Creek Killer, he's the Creek. <laughs> well, yeah. Now, now the Creek Killer. Now it's the Eron's Creek Killer. <laughs> There's just so many fucking nicknames for this guy, and I just have the last thing that we talk about in this section annoys me so bad because later on debbie is at her grandma's house and debbie and sherry have been living at sherry's aunt's house so the grandmother's sister um but she they've been living there while she had it up for sale and the grandmother fucking says to her sister that she's glad that it was her daughter not her because she doesn't know what she would do without her sister yeah and debbie hears debbie hears this so she's already gone through the tragedy of saying these awful things to her mom. She's already gone through the tragedy of losing a good friend in Greg. And now she's going through the tragedy of her grandmother saying that yeah. when she is in the house, like, can we just yes. not, can we just and hold it in? Keep the it, guilt you you, that. Keep it to yourself, people. Yeah. Time and place to never, ever say shit like that. Yeah. And she already has to, you know, come to terms and forgive herself for the conversation, the last conversation she had with her mother. Now she's hearing all this other stuff. And that woman, uh, she must be one hell of a woman. It talks about how she spiraled, which, and it's the same thing with Janelle Cruz, how she grew up in a rough way. And her mother was kind of a partier. Her dad was absent. They spiral a lot, and I completely understand that. And I think that Michelle does a good job of connecting with their spiral and Definitely. putting it out there and and letting you know. And exactly, and nobody's perfect, and and if it's you've okay. Gone through the stuff, of course, you're not going to cope well. No, okay people who not. didn't go through that stuff would not. Right. Even people with healthy lives, quote unquote, healthy lives, is anybody really that? But. No, no matter what, wrong. nobody's going to cope well. That's right. what I'm trying to get at. It's okay. We're human. Yeah. And I just think, like you said, this woman, I think she found her way out of it. And we can never imagine. But I think Michelle gave us a way to connect, to yeah. feel a little bit of what she felt. Yeah. Obviously, we cannot know no. the full extent. But I think Michelle did a really good job with a lot of these victims or even the survivors and Debbie's case of letting us kind of connect a little bit with their story. Yeah, exactly. I think, no, I think that's a good way to end this part. Um, we will continue and cover part two because there still is so unfortunately a lot more. Um, Cause I feel like we've already gone through a lot of this sickening stuff and I feel like we still barely skim the surface and that's right. just, just goes to show even more how gruesome this man is. Um, right. Yeah. And we're not going to do this kind of format every time. No, it's so just kind of the way the book. your favorite 
stick with us. Yeah. Next time we're going to do a different book and hopefully it's going to be a, a more complete story. But I think just because there wasn't a Michelle to finish and put the story in the correct order. Yeah. Just what was what they did. So we're going with what they did. So yeah. And yeah, <laughs> our brains, our brains are just as scattered. <laughs> we're trying to take notes and go along with it as we go to take notes and go along with it as we go. But it jumps so much that it's, yeah. Yeah. And this is our first podcast. Yeah. So Don't just, for- take just forgive us. We're humans. We make mistakes. We mess up a lot, but hopefully it was a little bit entertaining. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Um, uh, and just do nice things and be nice to people. Cause yeah. Every time I read or reread these parts or go over it, I just think the world would be so much fucking better if we were just a little bit nicer to people. Yeah. So just do nice things, people. Yeah. That's how we're exactly. going to end it. Be nice to each other. Be nice. Have a great day. Well, well, you'll hear from us soon. All right. 